I don't think we've ever seen a, a dichotomy uh, like we have today between what a, uh, a uh, the constitution of a particular government se- or a country says and the way we are being ruled. I, I've spent so much time on the Civil War era because I think Lincoln really changed things forever. And I think that's when we started going down this dark road we've never come back from. Polite society in general, the establishment, they stay away from the topic of the founding fathers because the whole idea, just reading the Declaration of Independence sounds like you're reading something from a militia site. If you read what they, what they were revolting against was a walk in the park compared to what we've been putting up with for decades in America. The tyranny we're living under, and it's not far offshore. It's right from the halls of Washington, D.C. and corporate America. These are the people that are tyrannizing us, and we're allowing it. We're permitting it. No one's putting on yellow jackets in America. I am proud to offer another great product, ProxyStem Stem Cell Pro. This amazing product supports eight areas of stem cell health, including the AMPK gene, which in a UCLA study, researchers showed in an animal model that by increasing the amount of AMPK in the body, they can increase a healthy lifespan by approximately 30%. mTOR inhibition. The mTOR inhibition has extended mouse mean lifespan by 33%. Also, biogenesis. The additional PQQ triggers mitochondrial biogenesis, which increases the number of mitochondria in your cells. These are the powerhouses of your cells. The energy-hungry brain and heart is believed to benefit greatly from PQQ. ProxyStem ingredients also increases the amount of telomerase protein that cells make when they're in a state of telomerase activation. With all the healthy cell benefits, this formula is the most advanced formula we have seen on the market. Also, with RevGenetics' brand new formula, it comes in a lower price. This means you're getting the best price anywhere for this product. Click the link below to see studies and to buy yours today. Welcome to Business Game Changers. I'm Sarah Westall. Today I have Donald Jeffries coming back. He has an amazing book coming out called Crimes and Cover-Ups in American Politics, 1776 through 1963. You are going to see and read things that you have not read in any other history book. He really dives into things. I mean, essentially what he's doing is, you know, history is always written by the victor. He's looking at it from the loser standpoint and trying to come to grips with what the real truth is because everything's always rosy and covered over and there's all this romantic talk about the victor when you know the loser obviously has a different perspective so he's trying to say okay what really happened in history and then not only when it comes to wars but he also talks about it from a political standpoint and all sorts of events from the beginning of our country on he talks about um, how our founding fathers are not talked about. There, there's no motion picture done on our. Why? Why don't? Why does not the media want to talk and the Hollywood want to talk about our founding fathers and the Revolutionary War? Because they don't want us questioning why we fought the Revolutionary War and start questioning, you know, tax policies and all these things, and what their beliefs truly were. It's very interesting when you really look at what he's talking about. And then for my Patreons, uh, he sticks around and talks about the Illuminati and the founding of the Illuminati that started in 1776 when our country was founded. And he talks about all that stuff. And it's a, there's a real person behind it and there's reality behind that 
and he talks about how it was started. And he also is very proud of the fact that Ron Paul wrote the foreword to his book. So some of you who are Ron Paul fans might want to get the book just because of that, because Ron Paul he really endorses the book. It's really great. Now, you, you listen to Donald Jeffries talk in this, and he almost sounds like a Nazi white supremacist, and he's not. He's like the antithesis of that. He's always been... Uh, you know, on pretty much the far left. He's almost like a Cynthia McKinney, but this is now saying, wait a minute, I don't believe in the far left or the far right. I don't even believe in left-right paradigm anymore because it's all BS. I just want to know what the truth is. And you start uncovering the truth and you become a different person in the way that you speak. Even though your underbelly fundamentals and foundations are a certain way, and we're going to disagree on the size of the government and all these other things, but we're coming to a point now where all of us are coming together and just saying, I want to understand the truth. I want to understand what really happened. I want to see things from different perspectives so we can learn and make things better. And so people who you would have thought was far right are sounding like they're, I'm sorry, far left. They're sounding like they're far right. They're so, I mean, the world is a crazy upside down place. And I love it when people come forward and just say, okay, I'm just going to dive into the truth and figure this out. So I think you will love this too. So let's get into my interview with Donald Jeffries. Donald, thank you so much for coming back to the program. Oh, thanks for having me, Sarah. It's always a pleasure. You have an amazing new book out, and it's all about the history before the John F. Kennedy murders, which you have, you researched JFK a lot, and then you decided to go earlier because one thing I read in your foreword of the book is that you can't really, it's not like conspiracy or history started when JFK was murdered. It happened before that. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, it was, it was originally intended to be a prequel. In fact, I wanted to call it Hidden History to the prequel, but for some reason the publisher uh, didn't like that as much. They just called it Crimes and Cover-Ups in American Politics, 1776-1963. Yeah, I just wanted, because I mean, I, a couple people did tell me, you know, it didn't start with the JFK assassination, and of course I knew that. I just uh, put hidden history together because that was more of a timeline of my life and, uh, you know, what was uh, the most significant impact when I was a really little kid of the JFK assassination and how it's kind of gone downhill since then. But certainly I could have gone back farther. I, I said I had to start it somewhere. But um, so I started, you know, with the American Revolution, the War for Independence. And uh, it's, basically, it's basically history of, of uh, an independent America and uh, goes through, obviously, um, War of 1812, the Civil War, a lot about the Civil War and the war between the states, Lincoln, uh, Lincoln assassination, World War One, World War II, uh, things like the Nuremberg trials. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at things in a different way that had not been looked at, uh, scrutinized this way in a long time. So it's it's going to be controversial because I, you know, any, any book that manages to try to exonerate both Joe McCarthy and the Rosenbergs is going to be controversial. So that's what this book does. Well, <laughs> so... There's a lot in here. I mean, just like you're saying, it's going to be controversial. There's a lot in here that Americans don't know. What would you say is maybe one of the biggest bombshells or one of the things that you learned that really had the most impact on you as you're doing this? Well, I mean, I, and I, I do learn things all the day. One thing I learned that I, I thought was a little shocking is mo Americans have all heard the expression, uh, you know, you have freedom of speech, but you can't shout cr uh, fire in a crowded theater. And we kind of tend to think of it, well, I mean, even I tend to think, well, that's okay, that makes sense, and maybe it's always been that way. Well, no, it hasn't. 
that that phrase came about through one of the one of the conventional liberal heroes of the court historians, Oliver Wendell Holmes, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. He ruled in his ruling upholding Woodrow Wilson's throwing dissenters like Eugene Debs in jail for opposing World War One because he basically it, it, it upheld restrictions on free speech, and that's where the the phrase "you can't yell fire in a crowded theater" came from. I did not know that until I researched this book. And I think it's very revealing that up until World War One, no one ever had to put that caveat on free speech. And obviously, since then, there's a lot more caveats, especially with the invention of uh, hate speech and all this oh, nonsense. Oh, it's stupid. So they're, they're restricting free speech as much as they can. Well, they're making stuff up now just to censor people yep. they don't agree with, which is it's exactly why <laughs> that was put in place in the first place. But... Yep. There was some interesting things. I'm going to read this paragraph because I, I love this. You say, the founding fathers being reframed or missing in our culture. There has never been a full-length motion picture devoted to the life of Washington or Thomas Jefferson or Benjamin Franklin or any other legendary figure from revolutionary era. With one exception, the 1931 biopic of the banker's favorite founding father, Alexander Hamilton. And then you go on to say, this is decidedly odd. And considering that the, during the golden age of film, Hollywood lavished big budget attention on the likes of Henry VIII, Queen Elizabeth, Benjamin Disraeli, Napoleon, Marie Antoinette, Andrew Jackson, Annie Oakley, Buffalo Bill, you go on and on. And then you say this was during a conservative, highly patriotic period in our history with a plethora of World War II films produced almost as soon as America entered the conflict. Lincoln and the Civil War were exactly shunned either. Where was Gone with the Wind of, where was the Gone of the Wind of the War for independence? It's obvious the powers that are to be are reluctant to even discuss the revolutionary era because to do so is to speak favorably of anti-government movements, tax protests, and citizens taking up arms to revolt. It's not the founders themselves, it's what they represented that remains so threatening to those who misrule us today. I added the today. <laughs> <laughs> so what, I mean, is this, I mean, I love that paragraph. That was really well written. What would you say to that? Yeah, well, I think it's, and it, I don't think we've ever seen a, a dichotomy uh, like we have today between what a, uh, a, uh, the constitution of a particular government or a country says, and the way we are being ruled under that alleged constitution. And it's been that way, as you know, I, I, I've spent so much time on the Civil War era because I think Lincoln really changed things forever. And I think that's when we started going down this dark road we've never come back from. But uh, obviously, and, and under the framework of the constitution, there's supposed to be checks and balances. There's supposed to be three equal in the branches of the government, and that has not been the case since the Civil War. The first imperial presidency, and you already had the Supreme Court under John Marshall usurping the powers they were supposed to be given, and it's the legislative branch still that is the weakest branch of the government, and that's the branch that's closest to the people, and the one that we can conceivably overturn every two years. We don't do it because we keep reelecting 96% of these clowns, but my point was that we, I think that uh, the reason Hollywood and, 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 and polite society in general, the establishment, they stay away from the topic of the founding fathers because the whole idea, just reading the Declaration of Independence sounds like you're reading something from a militia site 
Most Americans would probably think that because they're taught you're talking about tyranny, acts of tyranny. And if you read what they what they were revolting against was a walk in the park compared to what we've been putting up with for decades in America, the tyranny we're living under. And it's not far offshore. It's right from the halls of Washington, D.C. and corporate America. These are the people that are tyrannizing us and we're allowing it. We're permitting it. No one's putting on yellow jackets in America. We are allowing this to happen, and I, you know, I don't know. However many people read my book, I hope they they get the message. But that ought to tell something because George Washington, for instance, is still. I mean, you take back to the 1930s era or whatever when when Hollywood first the golden age. Um, at that time, George Washington was a mythical figure. He had he had good press. Nobody was bad mouthing him, or even Jefferson. Why didn't they make a picture about him? Why didn't they, I mean, that would just seem to be a natural. They made plenty about Lincoln. They made a, a, a picture about Andrew Jackson's mistress. They made a picture about Andrew Johnson. Why didn't anyone decide, hey, let's make a picture about the, the, you know, the greatest American that ever lived? That's what they thought then and still generally thought. The father of our country. Nothing. It's nothing. strange. It is. Well, it's kind of, it's the patriots, like you were saying. If you go to a website that talks about the Constitution, they think that you're a terrorist or yes. a bigot. They've gotten in the, ma the minds of the mass media or the ma masses that anybody that talks about our Constitution or that even has a flag is a terrorist or a bigot. Yes, that's How do what we get do. to that point? How do we well, get to the point that we're well, destroying ourselves like that? Well, I, you, first of all, you have so many uneducated Americans, and this is generally, um, I, I think Americans are generally historically illiterate, and now with the culture divide that we have that has really come under uh, light, it's like the roaches scurrying from, you know, out of the kitchen, since uh, Trump was elected, the culture divide is obvious and so clear and growing every day, that section of the country that hates him, that has the Trump derangement syndrome for what, I mean, just because I think he generally represents an old white America to them, which they hate. So they, they I don't think, how many of these people even support the Constitution? I, I don't think they support it all. They certainly don't support the First Amendment. They tell you they don't. You can't say this. That's hate speech. I, that ridiculous Chris Cuomo I, I uh, saw him, uh, I, you know, I would never watch him live, but there was a, a clip of him saying about uh, people need to read the Constitution about hate speech. And the word hate doesn't appear in the Constitution. This guy's supposedly a lawyer and he's a talking head. So this is where, this is where people, especially the people on that side of the, the so-called left side of the cultural divide, that's where they get their information from. So they, I mean, I, I would be surprised if a bunch of them didn't think transgenders weren't addressed in the Constitution. I mean, this is where we are now. So they are very woefully ignorant about their history. So I know I'm swimming against the tide here. Well, it's, they're weak-minded in a lot of ways. I mean, because how can you, it, it's just they believe them, but then won't listen to anyone else that's trying to educate them. You know, minorities and, and those groups, the way that Trump is trying to dismantle or at least clean up the corruption in the justice system, that should really resonate with them. Well, because that's where a lot of the persecution against minorities are, I mean, it really is there. A lot of it is there. A lot, again, a lot, a lot of people, um, white America, especially the silent, what, what Nixon, I guess, called the silent majority, and they, they were, and they were a lot less silent then, back in the 1960s yes. and 70s. 
now now they are just dead silent. I mean, they and you're right behind closed doors. They grumble about minorities. They grumble about this. They understand a lot of the problems. They understand immigration is absurdly out of control, that kind of thing. But they continue to vote for candidates. Uh, now, Trump is the first candidate who ever said he was going to do something about it. Now, he hasn't. He's especially on immigration. He's dropped the ball over and over again. But and it's you know, he's just kind of playing a game where he's tweeting one thing, but his policies are uh, very largely similar to Obama's. But up until this point, I remember when Pat Buchanan ran for president, I, I had people in my family who uh, were crumbling about immigration then as I was. And I said, well, you need to vote for Patrick Cannon. He'll do something about it. Oh, no, I can't stand him. He's a racist. And they voted for Bush. And I said, you, you know what Bush is going to do? He's, gonna, he's, he's, he's for open borders. So this is the uh, – Americans vote against their own interests. They, they, they have for a very long time. And they are ignorant of their history. And I think that's why Hollywood and the establishment tries to suppress any mention of the the founding fathers, if they're mentioned at all today, it's to denigrate them. As, unless you're Hamilton. Now, if you're Hamilton, you're a hip black young rapper on Broadway, you know, because he's the banker's favorite founding father. He invented debt, so they love this guy. He would fit in today. The rest of them, not so much, and they're denigrated as dead white males if they're talked at all. And if they talk about the Constitution or the Declaration of Independence, they kind of sneer at all men are created equal. What about women? And, you know, the, the slaves being three-fifths and all that, all that kind of stuff. That's what comes up, not about the fantastic ideals and the ideal that the most powerful ideal, two powerful ideals that have been completely forgotten, no taxation without representation, which was the idea of James Otis, a figure who's been largely forgotten, one of the people I write about in this book. And um, the, the idea that every people has a, have a right to be – to consent to whoever governed them, the consent, the right of the the consent of the governed, that has been completely forgotten, and it was shattered during the Civil War because Abraham Lincoln shattered that forever because the Southern states clearly no longer consented to be governed by the federal government. They weren't allowed to secede, even though what they were doing was a carbon copy of what we uh, we had done, the colonies had originally done when they revolted from England. And I don't think we've ever recovered from that because the side that won has written the history and they have uh, reconstructed the narrative to where this was considered a second American revolution when in fact it shattered the ideals of the first revolution. Most people don't know, for instance, that Abraham Lincoln hated the founding fathers. He especially hated Jefferson. And I talk about that in this book. And the, But still too many people, even people that are awake, couple Lincoln with Jefferson and, and, and Washington and, and uh, George Mason and people like that. And that's just, that's not right. That's, that, that's, you, you don't know history if you're doing that because they weren't on the same side of the debate. Well, and you, you talk about the invention of total war. And it, you have a quote here saying, General William Sherman, he says, we are not fighting armies, but a hostile people and must make old and young, rich and poor feel like, feel the hard hand of war. And they went in and just demolished cities and towns. What, can you speak to that? Yeah, because up up until that point, up until the way the North conducted themselves during during the war between the states, uh, there were there were some generally agreed upon principles of warfare. Uh, generally, it w it was not considered uh, the you know it, everybody kind of agreed and un, un, you know that it was uh, kind of a handshake agreement that uh, you don't go after civilians, you don't rape women, you don't destroy property, you don't burn crops. Well, that was all shattered by the North. The concept of total war was anything's fair. 
And that's why if you look at what, especially when the, the South uh, began, to, began to really be devastated, and, and the South lost uh, basically one quarter of their, male po- their, their uh, young male population. That's just unbelievable. During the, so, and they had no money left. They had no resources. So when Sherman began his, his infamous march to the sea, and he went through the South, marched through Georgia and so forth, what he was doing is he was going up against uh, almost exclusively women old men, and there weren't too many that were considered too old to fight, and very young kids. And again, a lot of young boys fought and lost their lives in the war. So he was going up against defenseless foes who largely didn't have any weapons. And they decided to let, hey, let's burn the houses down. Let's burn the crops and and litter the fields with oil and salt so that they can't grow again. They stole food. And one one of the most, I think, uh, shocking things I discovered was the letter of... uh, Representative uh, uh, Lieutenant Thomas Myers, a Union soldier who wrote back to his family, I believe in 1864 or something like that, and describing, and he's kind of grumbling and complaining about not getting his fair share, but he's describing the organized theft that took place under Sherman. And I'm sure it wasn't just under him. Guys like Sheridan and Grant, I'm sure they had a plunder and graft thing going on as well. They were stealing jewelry and other prized possessions from the people as they marched through the South. And then they were dividing it up. As this guy grumbles, he said, Sherman alone has enough gold and silver to start his own bank. So he was getting a cut of it. This this guy was not only a mass murderer, he was a common thief. If there is such a thing as a war criminal, uh, I can't think of any that were were worse than William Sherman. But he's considered a hero. And that's the problem. I'm I'm talking about this stuff, and I'm I'm showing. This is a letter from the North. That's not my opinion. This guy, he's not trying to expose Sherman. He's, he, in fact, at the end of the letter, he says, don't show this out of the family. Well, no, it, it wouldn't look too good to do that. But that's what was going on, and Americans don't realize it, and everything is excused, everything that the North did. And they, I mean, I, I have a litany of war crimes, if there are such things as war crimes, that I describe in there. And the, the rape, the wholesale rape they conducted, especially against uh, slave women. For some reason, the northern troops just – and it's documented. It's over and over again accounts of that. Tyrannizing, killing – things that we would later see in Iraq and Afghanistan. I think that was born – that mentality was born of the north. Things like killing dogs indiscriminately, destroying kids' toys, just you know, things just mean, spirited things that are outside any kind of uh, conduct of warfare. Like you became a rabid animal yeah. and you just yeah. – just lose control. Yeah, and that's and ever since then, that's the way uh, I think, especially American troops have conducted themselves. And I, I describe what happened uh, uh, certainly with the Allied troops in World War II. Again, indiscriminate rape, plunder, stealing. I mean, I, I think I have a, a quote in there where something like, uh, oh, it's it's an incredible percent, a, a large majority of uh, Japanese bodies that were found at one point were missing skulls. Because Allied troops were taking them as souvenirs, and they were sending they were sending like body things parts of skeletons, especially skulls, home to their families as if this was some kind of trophy to be proud of. Well, we know it's yeah. wrong, right? You we know would, it's wrong because they cover yeah, it up. Yeah. They cover it up in history, so they know how wrong it is. So why do we do it if we know how wrong it is? All societies have been shown, you know, the Soviets and. All these societies have done so many atrocities, but they always cover yeah, well, it up. Get... So they know how wrong it is. Why do they do, just like today with the 
the mass murder of children and the abuse yep. and the ritual abuse, they all know it's wrong because they cover it up and lie in public. I, so I, why do they do it if they have to lie about it? Well, I think that first of all, I think they must. Clearly, they don't have any kind of a belief in, uh, in a God that will judge them. Because I, I, you know, they cover it up all they want here, but they would still have to fear the the great beyond and being judged. So, you know, again, is it some of this uh, is it because they worship the dark force, Satan, or whatever, possibly. But a lot of it again comes from when this this total war and scorched earth policy. It was born during the war between the states, and ever since then, and again, the side that won. That's the side that prevailed. They were considered the good guys. So, you know, if people keep telling you that uh, it's okay, I mean, it's the same reason cops will uh, plant evidence. And, and they've, get, they've gotten caught over and over doing it. And their excuse, if they ever are held accountable, which they almost never are, is to say, well, you know, that I, I was tired of seeing these guys get away with stuff. And I know he'd done something. So yeah. I wanted to make sure he got caught. So they justify it in that way. Well, he's a bad guy. And we're justifying. So in, in General Sherman's uh, mind and these people's mind, the Southerners were absolute evil. They were traitors. They were destroying the Union. So we, we have to kill every last one of them. And, and you know, that mentality would, would go on to later be said about the Germans, you know, on the, Mor on the, the Morgenthau plan, where they wanted to starve the Germans to death. And with all the talk about the Holocaust, you never hear about that. Mm -hmm. where they were, this is America. This is Roosevelt's Secretary of Treasury, I believe, that, that thought of that. Now, they never instituted it, but they talked about it. And of course, you go later on to, uh, you know, things like our embargoes of Iraq that killed, you know, a million children or whatever it was because we withheld baby formula and so forth. This kind of, I mean, we justify it. Madeleine Albright, what did she say? Was it, was it justified? Yeah, I think it was. So they justify that thing and they have the, the audacity. And also after the war between the states, we also crossed another line and invented this concept of uh, legally punishing Further, those you defeated in war. Up until that time, I don't think there's an account anywhere of a loser of a losing force in any kind of war doing anything other than signing you, know, you sign treaties and whatever terms you come to, and then you shake hands and go on. But in this case, that didn't happen. The punitive measures that the North took against the South were just unbelievable. It began when they hung Commander Wirtz of the Andersonville prison, and I describe his real background when this guy, if anything, was a benevolent spirit and certainly much a much more moral and principled person than any of these northern generals were. He had tried, he and the other southern prisoners, uh, commandants, had tried over and over again to get the north to trade prisoners because they told him, we can't feed our people, and hell, you're burning our crops and everything now. We don't have the food for our own selves. How do you think we can feed these prisoners? The North refused to swap prisoners, and then, and then it got so desperate, they tried to just, hey, can we just take your prisoners? We can't feed them. As a moral, so they were trying to give the prisoners back without getting their own back in return, and the North still wouldn't do it, because the entire concept, especially at General Grant, who uh, Mary Lincoln, Mary Todd Lincoln, who comes out better than her husband in this book. I have a kind of a soft spot for her. She was also the first conspiracy theorist about his death, but she's the one who who referred to uh, Lincoln's uh, Grant's nickname of Butcher, and she talked about this, this great American hero, is considered such a great general, his entire strategy, and that's why, for instance, George McClellan 
was denigrated. And today, they you know they basically uh, claim he was derelict and slow. He was the only Union general that didn't want to keep rushing in and win a war of attrition. He didn't want to sacrifice his troops. Grant's entire strategy was, hey, we outnumber them greatly. They can't beat us. So it doesn't matter how many of our troops we get killed. McClellan actually wanted strategy to minimize the loss of life. And of course, Lincoln replaced him because he had a case of the slows, as he said, and this is his brilliant way. So this, so this is what happens. People like McClellan get relegated to uh, uh, kind of uh, the dustbin of history. People like Ulysses S. Grant, who in, in reality was, was a drunk and not a good strategist at all. And the only way he was able to defeat, because the, the Southern generals, especially Stonewall Jackson, were far superior in, in you know, just strategic ability. And that's why they were able to have the upper hand for so long, because they were greatly outnumbered. And certainly they didn't have the resources the North has, but it wasn't because of people like McClellan. It was because the North had no strategy other than let's win by a war of attrition. And Lincoln, of course, had no flexibility, would not compromise, would not negotiate. The South tried over and over again to negotiate, but they wouldn't do it. So, But what, what's the history written of that war? And it all revolves around the issue of slavery, of course. The only reason today that the North isn't seen for what it was – just a monstrous group of war criminals, if there ever was such a thing, is because of the fact of slavery. And I, I, I went off from the commander words. What I was trying to say is that they ended up hanging him after the war uh, for his war crimes. That set a precedent that we would see later, of course, after World War II. And I, I think I'm the first writer to write critically about that uh, in 70 years, maybe. I don't know, not you know, almost, uh, about the uh, the Nuremberg trials. They, were, they certainly were the antithesis of justice, and it, I have all the quotes in there, including a young John F. Kennedy of the people that criticized him on the left at that time about how this is, you can't do this. We decided you're going to legally try people you've just defeated in battle and, and hang them. I mean, this, it's unprecedented. Again, it never happened in the history of, of warfare, as far as I can determine. And now, because of the people, again, the people that won that war are still in power, they, their mindset, that's considered the definitive brand of justice. And I'm sure whatever attention my book gets, that will probably be one of the most controversial portions of it, because no one disputes, no one on the left or right, except for me, apparently, is trying to point out this, this, that the emperor is wearing no clothes here. That was not justice. It was it was horrific. Plus, it was it was not any kind of uh, balance to it whatsoever. Why weren't the uh, Japanese officials? I believe it was Emperor Hirohito that lived for decades after that. They weren't all punished equally. And what about the Nazis that were later welcomed into the country under Oper Operation Paperclip and founded NASA? So, it's it, these are the questions historians don't ask. Well, don't you think the war crimes where you go after innocent people that has nothing to do with war? You just you you are an opportunist using the war to commit crimes. That those people should be brought to justice. Now, if you're just fighting a war and you're strategizing and you're doing these things, that's different, right? Yeah, well, Isn't that I, what well, that's a for? Well, supposedly, but again, I think that you know it depends because so much of this is built up on propaganda too. Because I, I go back and show from the beginning uh, for when again when we cross the next line after the Civil War, uh, the war uh, with Spain, the Spanish-American War of 1898, when it was that was the first false flag. Remember the main to hell with Spain, and they later proved that you know the, the, uh, uh, Spain Spain had nothing to do with that. 
but they wanted us to get in this war. People like Teddy Roosevelt, who's considered a great American hero, and in reality, he was a vile racist. If you think of Thomas Jefferson was a racist, compare some of the things Teddy Roosevelt said to what, and Abraham Lincoln to what Thomas Jefferson said. It was the most enlightened man of his time. But we went completely outside, certainly outside of the, uh, the advice given to, to uh, Americans by George Washington in his farewell address when he counseled against an interventionist foreign policy and talked about no entangling alliances with anyone, uh, cordial relations with everyone. Well, they can't. How can you teach George Washington's farewell address in any, in any school in this country and not have at least a few inquisitive minds say, oh, wait a minute, that, that contradicts everything about American foreign policy as it existed for my entire lifetime? Yeah, because they're questioning if he's supposed to be the greatest American president and he's telling yeah. us to do this, you know. <laughs> exactly. 